Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We have, for the last few weeks, been looking at 1 Corinthians 12. But today I want to take our attention to another passage that deals with the subject at hand, the subject of spiritual gifts. It's uh, been widely said in our culture in times past that the human brain only uses about 10 or 11 percent of its capacity. That notion, no one really knows where it came from. There certainly has never been any scientific studies to back that up. Many people believe it is the, it is the speculation of spiritists and uh, of Eastern gurus who think that we have some sort of dynamic potential that if we can lose our minds or lose ourselves in our minds somewhere deep in our resources, we can tap into un, unrealized power. But see, researchers in the brain certainly never have validated that. But it makes a useful analogy, nonetheless, for the church when we realize that there are, at any given time, all kinds of untapped potential. Now, there is all sorts of, uh, of unaccessed resources that are taking place in the church because there are so many people who have been given various spiritual gifts who are not employing them and are not using them. And who knows what the percentage might be and who knows how much is being tapped, but, but we could probably speculate that it's quite a small percent, that there are a number of people who are, for whatever reason, not serving, or if they are serving in some capacity, they're not serving, we would say, in the power of the Spirit, in the joy of the Spirit. They're not serving in a spiritual way. In fact, many times when they are serving, it is... It is stirring up, not edification, but discouragement and controversy and all sorts of other unspiritual fruits. It's a shame, really, when you think about a church having so much potential, so much potential to impact so many people on the face of the earth. And not only that, so much potential, even within its own ranks, to edify and to build up and to minister to and to care and to reflect the glory of God and to bring praise to his name. It's a shame when you think about all of that missed potential that's there and you wonder why it is. Well, we've been outlining in the past few weeks how all of these resources have been given to us in Christ in spiritual gifts. And we've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and basically summarized a couple of key principles. That is, first of all, that we all have a vital connection to one another because the life of Christ flows through the church. That, that, when you look into the New Testament, when you look into the Scripture, this is what you find. The, the church is called the body of Christ. And, in, and it's not a body in some sort of typical naturalistic fashion like we talk about a body of legislature or something like that. When the Scripture speaks about us being the body of Christ, it's communicating something about the vital life of Christ flowing through us. And so whenever you talk about the church and you talk about individual members, you're talking about the life of Christ working and, 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 and energizing each one of those individual members. Well, just that one thought ought to completely transform you, the way that you think about your involvement, your connection, your integration into any particular congregation. It ought to make you realize that if you ever cut yourself off from the church, you aren't just sort of a standing aloof on some plateau of spirituality and maybe even leaving behind all your problems. You're cutting yourself off from something vital, some vital connection to Christ himself. 
that is there in the life of the church. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 12, we could summarize by saying that God has appointed a role for you in the lives of others. Not only has Christ uh, promised or not only has God given that vital life of his to flow through you, but as a consequence of that, we're told in repeated verses in 1 Corinthians 12 that God has appointed a role. He's appointed a gift. He's appointed a ministry. He's appointed something for you in the life of others. Now, we could just take those two things and we could just just assume then that what we really need to do is just sort of organize all of these people and organize all of these gifts, just sort of make a bunch of activity and create a bunch of busyness and, and pull off a few programs that we just tell people they have spiritual gifts and then we just figure out a way to sort of get them to interact, schedule some activities and just let the church start to minister to itself. That really it's just a matter of facilitating. Just get a bunch of programs. Get a bunch of people busy. And for, the, for some, that's all the church is. As a matter of fact, when they look for life in a church, what they look for is programs. When they look for life in a church, what they look for is activity. They look at the weekly calendar, the monthly calendar. They look at the bulletin. They look at the website. They look at for all these things, and they just sort of assume that if there's activity, that there is spiritual life. If there's activity, that there's community. But that would be a mistaken assumption. Because even though Christ has promised that his life is flowing through each member, and even though he has assured us that he's appointed a role for each of us, the stark reality is still so many people fail to minister in their spiritual gifts. Still so many people fail to minister the life-giving power of Christ that he has promised to flow through them in these gifts. So many people fail to reach the real spiritual capacity in their own lives and ministries. And we ask the question, why? Why is that? Why can you go into a, a church, even with a lot of activity and a lot of programs, and still not find people growing spiritually, and still not find people being edified spiritually? Why can you go into places of ministry and find all kinds of activity and find people grudgingly going through it, and in the midst of it, not exhibiting spiritual fruits at all, but exhibiting the flesh and pride and anger and disappointment and all these things? Why is that? Well, it's because... We don't rely just on the realities of our spiritual gifts. We understand that in order for those gifts to be active, they have to be energized by certain attitudes, spiritual attitudes that are necessary in the body of Christ, spiritual attitudes that energize these gifts, that make them happen, that put them to work, that create, if you will, the, the free flowing work of the Spirit. They're spiritual attitudes that take us out of a fleshly mode and, and move us into a spiritual mindset so that the life of Christ can flow through us. And it's hinted at in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because Paul gets to the end of that chapter, you remember, and he says, look, you are desiring the higher gifts, but I will show you still a more excellent way. And that 
of course, progresses as Paul moves into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the greatest exposition on love that you'll find anywhere in the world. And what he's telling them is that you can operate in these gifts. You, you, can, you can claim all of these activities. You can do all this ministry. But if you don't have the right attitude of love, he says, it's going to be no better than a clanging cymbal. It's all going to be nothing. All of it's going to be worthless if you're out there and you're trying to operate in whatever various kinds of ministries you have, but you don't have the right kind of spiritual attitude. Well, my heart this morning, my desire this morning is to expand on that just a bit, to, to maybe even say lay a foundation before we spend time in 1 Corinthians 13 to realize that while love is the supreme, while love is the most exalted, the most important attitude, it's not the only attitude. And to do that, I want to turn our attention here to 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, to Romans chapter 12, where we find uh, perhaps the, the other most significant discussion on spiritual gifts that you find anywhere in Scripture, and particularly in verses 4 and 5, You'll notice almost identical language to what you find in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is a chapter that's written also in the context of body life, in the context of spiritual gifts. But Paul frames these two statements there about the body of Christ and about our gifts. He frames these in the context of several attitudes that are essential if we're going to minister to one another as Christ desires. They're essential to the proper operation of our spiritual gifts. And if these attitudes are present, it really doesn't matter whether or not you have programs or activities or calendars or any of that stuff. People will most certainly serve one another in the power of the Spirit. And the life of Christ will be vitally and powerfully flowing through the church. Programs or no programs. Activities or no activities. Now we don't have time to go in depth, but we can briefly review each of these attitudes that energize our gifts here. Looking, beginning in verses 1 and 2, with the attitude of sacrifice. Attitude of sacrifice. This is one of the most essential spiritual attitudes you could ever develop. It's, essentially, it's essential to everything that Paul has to say in this chapter. And in fact, even in the whole letter, you find this attitude here in these two well-known verses. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there's obviously so much to these two verses we don't have time to cover. There's a whole review of the mercies of God, which is essentially Paul's phrase for summarizing everything he said in the first 11 chapters of this book, everything he has said about what God has given you in Christ and through the gospel. And now he, he says all of this, and in light of all that, he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So there's sacrificial language here. It's said against the backdrop of a whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But here Paul's saying that we ought to be willing and eager to present a living 
sacrifice of ourselves because of all that God has done for you. You ought to be willing to lay down yourself. You ought to be willing to sacrifice yourself. You ought to be presenting yourself to God every day. That is the idea of this verse. You ought to lay yourself on the altar and if you will, you ought to say, God, I am yours. Totally. I belong to you. My life belongs to you. My time belongs to you. My heart belongs to you. Everything I have belongs to you. This is the exact opposite of what so many people do. If they are religious, if they're Christian, if they're involved with churches, they seem to think that sometimes the missing element in their life is trying to figure out a way to get just get more of God. Just go out there and just find more of God or find more from God. They're out there searching for some experience or something that will allow them to do that. And they miss the whole point. The idea isn't to get more from God. It's to give Him more. It's to give Him yourself. Paul says... This is what we ought to do. We ought to be presenting yourself as a living and a holy sacrifice. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. You come here each week. You mouth words of all the songs that we sing. But if if this isn't your attitude, if this isn't the heart that's behind it, you are not offering spiritual worship, reasonable, real worship. You're not properly reflecting on the gospel. You're not really contemplating the mercies of God. You're probably underestimating the demand of the sacrifice that's made upon you. And Paul indicates that the sacrificial attitude will result in you, quote, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect. This fundamentally, in other words, teaches you Not to follow the pattern in this world, not to be conformed to this world. It fundamentally teaches you to set your values, your standards, your measuring stick by by different measures. Now, this is the first attitude that Paul introduces to us in this chapter, and it's essential. It is essential before he talks about spiritual gifts, before he talks about body life. It is essential if a church is going to have the life of Christ flowing through it, if people are indeed going to operate as they ought in spiritual gifts, if people are going to be edifying one another, they must approach each other. They must approach ministry. They must approach the issue of their gifts. They must approach the opportunities that are set before them with a sense of sacrifice, with a sense that they're not their own. You hear about a need You hear about someone hurting, you hear about a task to be done, you hear about some ministry that's left lacking, you hear about all these things, you're presented with some act of service and your immediate attitude ought to be, I've given myself to God. I've given myself to God. Unless a church constantly promotes and constantly reinforces This spiritual attitude of sacrifice. You can have all the activities you want. You can have all the programs you want. You can have 40 days of this. And you can have overnights that. And you can have video this. And you can have all sorts of community, small group, whatever you want. You can have all this activity, all that you want. You will not have ministry. You will not have spiritual life. You won't have spiritual gifts flowing. 
Some people never experience the true power of the Spirit working through them because they never approach their spiritual gift with this kind of attitude. Well, we have to keep moving. As I said, much could be said, but we can't spend much time. We want to cover it all this morning. We, we can take on a second spiritual attitude from this context. In verse 3, Paul talks about humility. By the grace given to me, he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. So along with this attitude of sacrifice, a church who wants to see believers ministering within their gifts must give constant reinforcement to the impact of the gospel on humility. Paul uses the word at the beginning of this word for, transitional word, coordinating conjunction in the Greek. He's giving it then as a companion truth, or we might say a a complementary truth to the idea of sacrifice. And he's suggesting that along with producing this attitude of sacrifice, the mercies of God that he first mentioned in the chapter ought to engender humility among us. Paul even presents this in a very humble stance himself. He says, by the grace given to me, I'm going to say this to you. He understands that even his role, even his function as an apostle of Jesus Christ and as a teacher of the gospel, he understands that even within that, he has been given grace. Very similar to what we've seen by Paul in Ephesians 3 when he says in verse 7, of the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Paul understood when he thought about his gift, when he thought about his ministry, he thought about it as a gift. He thought about it as grace. He thought about it as something he didn't deserve. Every opportunity to serve, it's a gift of grace. Every opportunity to do something for the glory of God, for the name of God, is something we don't deserve. As one, Paul says, who has received grace myself and able to serve others, one who doesn't deserve the ministry of apostleship, I certainly don't deserve the honor honor to be able to serve the Lord. But as a recipient of grace, I'm going to exhort you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think of yourself that way. But think with sober judgment, sound judgment. It's a word for for sobriety, of course, but the word really itself just means being in your mind, not being out of your mind. In other words, not being insane, not being beside yourself with silly thinking. And it would be silly to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It would be, it would be insane. It would be crooked to think of all of that. He's telling you, look, don't have an overestimated value of yourself. Don't have an overestimated value of your particular gifts. Don't estimate yourself too highly. It's always a a pity to see a drunk person, right? Who loses all sense of judgment, even to the point where they're willing with bravado to to enter into some fight that they never have a potential of of winning. They're going to drive and operate some motor vehicle, and they overestimate their abilities, and they they wind up wreaking all kinds of damage because of those things, because they just don't have sound judgment anymore. They overestimate what they're capable of. It's one of the effects of alcohol, right? Paul says, don't be intoxicated. 
Don't overestimate yourself. And instead, how should you think of yourself? Well, the opposite of that, obviously, is lowly, unworthy, undeserving, modest, deferential to others. Amy Carmichael says those who think too much of themselves don't think enough. Elizabeth Prentice perhaps says, quote, perhaps in the time of our humiliation, when everything seems a failure, we're making the best kind of progress. Augustine says humility is the soil in which all virtues grow. This is, this is really spiritual achievement. We get to a place like that where we're demonstrating, when we get to a place where we're deferring to others, when we're esteeming others, when we're thinking of others, when we're no longer thinking highly of ourselves, but we're thinking lowly and we're thinking highly of others, when we get to that place, we are making spiritual progress. We're demonstrating that we have grasped the gospel, that we understand the grace of God, that we understand everything that Paul has said in Romans so far. We would say that this humility is the soil in which all kinds of things can be planted, as Augustine says, all kinds of virtues, and we would add to that all kinds of ministries. This is a heart that God himself can plant ministry in. This is a heart in which God can minister Himself through us. Because the difference between a proud heart and a humble heart is a difference between a life centered around you and a life centered around God. And Paul says, look, we all have a tendency to think of ourselves too highly as more deserving. Someone who ought to be served rather than do the serving. Someone who ought to receive rather than do the sacrificing. Someone who ought to be honored rather than someone who ought to be showing honor. Paul says that's not sober thinking. It's not thinking in the light of the mercies of God. It's not sound and it certainly doesn't promote edification in the body of Christ. Gene Twinge, a professor from San Diego, wrote a book called Generation Me where she presented three decades of research into the narcissistic culture that we've become. And she examines everything from films to TV shows to magazine to personality tests to army enlistment rates to all those things to, to the group of people who've been born since 1970. And he, she demonstrates pretty clearly that we are perhaps in the American generation the most self-centered, the most disrespectful of authority, and on top of that, the most depressed, the most medicated that, that, that the world has ever seen. She writes, quote, America's cultural focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from the reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes performing enhancing drugs, phony celebrities with reality TV and YouTube, phony genius students with grade inflation, a phony national economy with $11 trillion of government debt, and phony friends with social network exploding all around us. And all this fantasy might feel good, but unfortunately, she says, reality always wins. And in spite of all that stuff, we have is a miserable group of people. A medicated group of people. More depressed, more miserable than anyone's ever been. Because this is a reality. Is that you think 
for whatever reason, that you're tired and you're weary and you don't have any more to give and you don't have any more to serve, you think that the, the, the solution somehow is to sort of pull off by yourself and to, to dive into some self-centered and narcissistic pursuit, some entertainment culture, some me-focused society. You think that somehow that is going to generate the kind of resources that you need in order to eventually and finally be able to go out and give something to somebody else. That's not true. That's not true. You know what generates that kind of energy? It isn't feeding your own flesh anymore. It's denying it. It's sacrificing. It's putting on humility. There are all kinds of ministries who are buying into this narcissistic culture. And in fact, building their churches around programs that, uh, that are designed in order to serve everyone's particular niche interest group. Uh, messages that are intended to stroke people's pride and make them feel good and places that are are always um, uh, telling you that we'll promise you a lot and demand very little. But as Dwayne, uh, Gene Twinge says, the unfortunate thing is reality always always wins. You may attract thousands. You may attract people who want nothing to do, they have no appetite for suffering, no appetite for sacrifice, no appetite for hearing the hard message of humility. You may make a church into an activity hub or an entertainment hub, but the end result is spiritual barrenness. The end result is that believers are never quite united as a spiritual family. Reality always catches up. But a church, if it wants to have true body life, if it wants to have true ministry, if it wants to have truly the life of Christ ministering and flowing through it in an unfettered way, it must continually emphasize these attitudes. Sacrifice. Humility. And then thirdly, faith. Faith. Paul says there at the end of verse 3, each one of us is to measure ourselves, each according to the measure of the faith God has assigned to us. Now, he's not talking about saving faith here. He's using this in the sense of, uh, of, uh, of how God has assigned each of us ministries. Each of us are to, uh, to minister according to the measure of faith. And this is it's not a very mysterious uh, phrase, or it shouldn't be. It's the same thing that Paul says in chapter 12 over and over and over again, that God has apportioned... God has assigned, God has measured out, God has given. He says it in Ephesians 4, 7. He says the same thing over there, that God has appointed, God has assigned a measure of grace, a measure of faith, a measure of certain gifts, a measure even of the Spirit, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has assigned these things to each of us. And what he's telling us is that God has given us opportunities, opportunities to express uh, uh, our, the, our gifts of the Spirit, opportunities to express the energizings of the Spirit, opportunities to realize the grace that's been given to us, and even in this particular verse, opportunities to express faith in one way or another, opportunities to trust Him, opportunities to believe and to receive whatever kind of Power and resources are necessary for the ministries God has given to us. Some ministry has been presented before you. 
It ought to demand your trust of Him. It ought to be stretching you. It ought to be drawing you closer. People may shrink away from some ministry because they feel like it's beyond their natural capacities. They know, for example, that they don't have patience. They know that they don't have endurance. They know that they don't have wisdom. They know that they don't have courage. They know that they don't have whatever it might be. And so what do they do? They just sit on the sidelines. Because they just measure themselves and they say, well, I don't have, I don't have that. Well, you need to measure yourself according to the opportunity to trust God. You need to, you need to measure yourself as, as, as uh, Paul tells us here, measure yourself according to these opportunities of faith. We ought to challenge people to plunge into ministry with a heart yearning to trust God, God a heart ready to trust Him for great things. So this is a spiritual attitude that has to be constantly stimulated and promoted and provoked in the church. A church that operates with a bunch of activity and a bunch of programs may feel very busy, but in the midst of that, you may not need God at all. You don't need God at all. That's not the kind of place we want. We want a kind of place where you're always needing God. Where you're always sort of on the ragged edge and always having to cling to Him and always finding Him your refuge and your strength and your sufficiency. We want a place where you're constantly always putting out, uh, we're putting you out there and you're putting yourself out there and you're constantly finding yourself at the end of yourself so that you're always having to trust God. That's what spiritual gifts are. They're not supposed to be easy. They're not supposed to be something that you put into autopilot. They're not supposed to be something that, don't, that, that, that doesn't exercise faith. They're not supposed to be something that doesn't need God. We need faith. We need attitudes of faith and people ready to trust God. Fourth, Paul talks about an attitude of stewardship. He takes all these principles, the affirmation in verses 4 and 5 that were one, many members, but one body in Christ. And then in verse 6, he applies all this saying, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Pretty simple. Just use them. Just get busy. Just do it. That's what he's saying. You have these gifts. They've been measured out to you. Now just get busy doing something. You claim to be a follower of Christ. You claim to be someone who loves God and loves his church. And then you sit by and you do nothing to minister to anyone else. That doesn't make sense, Paul says. And so this is a constant attitude that has to be reinforced in the church, this idea of stewardship. If the Lord has given these gifts to you, if you are a believer and he has assigned them out to you in some way, then no gift should be unused or to not use it would be to challenge the wisdom of God. It would be challenging the love of God. It would be an affront to him. It'd be missed opportunity for his glory. It would be missed opportunity to advance his kingdom. It would be missed opportunity for the church to be ministering to itself. It'd be missed opportunity for you to grow in your faith. Paul, of course, says this over and over again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, four times explicitly, he says in that chapter that God has apportioned out gifts according to his sovereign will. So we need to spend our time employing them. Paul says, having these gifts, let us use them. Don't squander them. Don't squander the grace of God, the opportunities to do his work, the opportunities to bring praise to his name. 
He says in verse seven, uh, end of verse 6, uh, Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. So if you have the gift of serving, serve. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have the gift of prophesying, prophesy. If you have the gift of exhortation, exhort. Uh, that word, by the way, exhortation, is, could be the word consolation or comfort. It's the word uh, parakletes, from which we sometimes associate the spirit who's called the paraclete, the comforter. So he's saying, look, if there are needs out there, the people need to be comforted, people who need to be consolated, people who need to be encouraged and exhorted, exhort, get busy, find someone who needs something and give to them. You have a stewardship. The one, he says, who contributes, do it in generosity. The word is haplotete. Teti, excuse me, haploteti, it's a word for undivided or a word for being single. And it has the idea of having no pretense, having no hypocrisy. Let your generosity, in other words, be the constant and quiet sort. If God has given you grace to have resources, don't, first of all, go out there and exhaust them all on yourself. And secondly, Don't go out there and look simply for opportunities when there's some big stage, when there's some spotlight, some big event, so that you can make some huge contribution and feel good about yourself and maybe receive accolades. Just minister your gift. Just give. Church is probably more impacted by those who give on a week-to-week and month-to-month basis than it is by the person who comes along occasionally and gives some major, major big gift at some major big event. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Don't let it always have to be with some sense of pretense. He says the one who leads with zeal. The old authorized version says let him do it quickly, which is... Really a good translation, the word is spude, literally it means, it means to make haste. And we realize that one constant source of frustration for many people in churches are those who are entrusted with leadership are just plain negligent. They're slow. They don't get things done, right? They're just not engaged. And Paul says, look, if you have that ministry... If that has been entrusted to you, then get on with it. Get something happening. Make something happen. Pull things together. Show some diligence. Show some zeal. Be quick about it, he says. Get busy. It might mean overcoming your fears. It might be overcoming your inhibition about failure if you happen to do something wrong. But in many cases, you're doing more damage by not doing anything rather than doing something wrong. Frustrating people, frustrating the ministry, driving people away. If that's been something you've been entrusted with, then be quick about it, he says. And the one who does acts of mercy, he says, do it with cheerfulness. Whether it's at the hospital, whether it's at the home, whether it's in the jail, whether it's on the street, whatever you do, don't be miserable about it. No, nothing worse than having someone to come and visit you in your problems and, and when they get there, all they want to do is commiserate with you because of their problems, right? Oh, man, you think you got a broken leg. Let me tell you about how I broke three legs. I mean, that's the way some people are. They just get there and they just dump. 
as if somehow that's going to encourage somebody. If you're going to, if you're going to minister to the miserable, don't be miserable. Do it, he says, with cheerfulness, hilarates, with hilarity, with laughter. You've been given a ministry. You've been given grace. You've been given gifts. Use them. Go out there. Find some opportunity to trust God, something that will stretch you, something that will move you. You've been given something. And if you understand the grace of God, if you understand the gospel, if you, if you understand all the things that you claim to, to sing every week, then you will be moved with these attitudes of sacrifice, of humility, of faith, of stewardship, and then finally, in verse 9, you'll be moved with love, right? We don't have to spend a lot of time here. We'll have plenty of opportunity when we get into 1 Corinthians 12 to expand on on this. But Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. We could probably add holiness as another attitude there, but we don't have time. Just love one another. Let this spiritual attitude be generated in you by the gospel. And when it's there, it will energize ministry. If you were to give me time, or give me choice, I should say, between spending time in um, organizing programs or in encouraging attitudes, there's no question what I would do. I would spend my time promoting attitudes. Paul wrote this, by the way, long before there were any programs. Long before there were any publishing houses. Long before there was any curriculum. Long before there was any fads and things that came down the pike in the church. He wrote this and he knew that it would be enough. He knew that these were really all that were needed. People would constantly hear these things spelled out for them over and over again. And if they did, and if they embraced them, they would minister. If these virtues and these attitudes were constantly called for, constantly held up, and people responded, the Lord would supply whatever resources are necessary for them to adequately minister to others. And the church would be edified. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for these truths and Father, we are mindful that we need them. We need to be reminded of sacrifice. We need to be reminded of humility. We need a deeper, more robust understanding of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would give that to us. Cause us, O Lord, to be deepened in that so that we can respond to the mercies of God with everything we ought to. To respond with sacrifice, with humility, with love, with stewardship, with faith. Lord, even these, we understand, need to be energized by your spirit and need to be the work of him sanctifying us. And so we present ourselves again to you. May you have your way with us. May you build spiritual life in this church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.